Hello, welcome to yet another episode of the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. My name is Anthony Bruno, and in this episode, Matt and I talk about a concept called excess capacity. Now, typically, this is framed as a bad thing and something that businesses should avoid, but Matt really turns this idea on its head and explains why having excess capacity is not only a positive, but actually, in fact, an essential component of running a successful company. Of course, Matt will explore the flip side as well, as he likes to do, when to limit features or even customers and when to reduce and focus on the core components of a business that really matter most. Now, I'm not going to give any more away. This was a really fun interview, so let's jump right in. Here's Matt. Matt, good morning. Nice to see you again. Good morning. So I had a question, if I could. You know, as we've been going through the current coronavirus situation and just sort of looking at the economic fallout from it all. You know, we were focused as a business for a while just on how the employment thing was working with some of the songwriters and such that we serve. But in kind of researching and addressing all of that, I started looking more at the broader small business loans that were out there as well. And the rush to unemployment uh, applications I kind of get, I was maybe naively surprised at the rapid (laughs) piling on there was in terms of the small business loans that were asked for. I mean, the CARES Act, I think the limit on that was like close to $350 billion in small business loans. And I was reading that yesterday that it was already basically reached its limit. Like there was like 1.3 million loans approved worth close to $300 billion, And they were saying that they might reach the limit by the end of the day. I haven't seen any, any updates since. But certain businesses I get, I, I, just, I guess I just don't understand. Like that happened really, really fast. And it seems like the relief is very, very short term. So was that just like a waste of time or... or I don't really have a specific question, I guess. I just, I just want to get your reaction to how that rolled out. You're mostly surprised at that, how quickly it got filled up, I think. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, it seemed like a lot. After a certain number of billion, it just becomes a number that, in my mind, has no understanding. The numbers are so big, it's really hard to keep track of it. But just what businesses were eligible for was essentially what your average monthly payroll is times two and a half. Like that's the total amount a company could get. So basically they're getting about two and a half months of payroll. That's it. Yep. That's really what it provides for. Now, because it the strings attached for it are actually pretty loose and it'll end up like a grant for most businesses, you'd be foolish as a business not to apply for it, even if you didn't really need it. You'd still technically qualify. Right. Because like you may not need it right now, but you don't know if you're going to need it in two months from now. And you don't know if there's going to be another opportunity to apply for loans in those two months. So you're, it's like toilet paper for businesses. It is. And I think one of the things is, is though, you have to realize like small businesses are the great engine of our economy. Most of the jobs in the country come from small businesses. Small businesses, unlike big companies like Amazon, get no tax breaks. Their owners pay the highest rate possible. It's only a one-way street going to the government. And so even my very like not take anything from the government friends we're signing up for this because they're just like, you know, this is the first time finally that the government's doing something that actually will help my business finally. So I'm going to take it. My theory early on was that if you're a business that has a good balance sheet already, meaning you might not need it as much, and you have good banking relationships and you have good professional advisors like accounting people and lawyers and stuff like that, then you would end up being the vast majority of people who would take advantage of it. The other businesses, this money that would be coming would be too late to help or they wouldn't have the help or expertise to be able to actually get this done. So the only person I personally know who has been approved for a small amount, $50,000, he has not yet received the money, but he had to track down and hassle the trustees of his bank in order to be able to get it pushed through. 
while it's easy to get, it's not going to be easy to get for your local restaurant who really needed it. And, you know, those smallest businesses, again, it's going to go to the ones who are bigger, which is why you mentioned to me earlier that the average was 200,000. Yeah, 240,000 is the amount of the average loan, which is out of 1.3 million, you know, not the most meaningful because it's all over the place, I'm sure. Right, it's all over the place. You got to imagine. So you imagine there's some companies in there with like, huge payrolls you know they must have like 20 million dollars a month that they're paying out in payroll and got 40 million from this package and then there are some that are like my friend who did, was approved was getting 50 it was all over the place so i, I don't think it's going to be effective not you know in terms of really accomplishing what the government wanted to accomplish and it seems to be proven true by the fact that the unemployment rolls are so massive right now already with another 5 million being announced today it's crazy anyway i think that the big problem with all of this is that there's like zero excess capacity in our system. Most households don't have enough savings to be able to weather any kind of distress. Most small businesses, I mean, I have a statistic on some of these things, like this small businesses, the average small business has 27 days of cash buffer coming into this, which means they, you know, they could operate without income for 27 days. Now, one of the most irresponsible things you can do as an entrepreneur is not make sure that you have a substantial cash buffer to you know, withstand whatever changes might occur. And of course, you, know, you can't predict something like this where you're forced to close by the government, but still 27 days is not much time. I mean, 25% of them have less than two weeks. So when you say substantial cash buffer, and if 27 days does not qualify as being substantial, what time frame do you feel does? It's not smart to have anything less than six months. If you, and I know people say that's crazy, but I just think when you have that amount of capital, it's not just that you set it aside only in case of emergency. It's that you have that amount of capital that you can sort of draw on when opportunities come up. So, I mean, having that dry powder is really, really important. Again, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to have some dry powder. And if you're you know, the head of household, you got to have some dry powder. And if you're a big corporation, you should have some dry powder. And I just think that those numbers got very low for people. Instead, what people would always think was lately the attitude has been, if there is a big opportunity, then we can just always get levered a little bit. We can take out some debt to take advantage of the opportunities. And it's just the wrong approach. So there's this interesting study that JP Morgan did. They have like a nonprofit institute that they just published different research on. And, you know, the banks are required by the Federal Reserve to do a stress test. So basically assuming unemployment goes up. So basically you get hindered in two ways simultaneously. One where your income goes down and then you have an unexpected surge in expenses. So that's the bank stress test. Now, in truth, if I recall, the bank version of the stress test only accounted for an unemployment rate of 10%, which we are well above that now. So they would fail all stress tests now. But JP Morgan then took that and applied that to households and said, okay, how often do families experience an unexpected shortage of income, like an unexpected shock to income? How often do they experience on the other side an unexpected expense? And then how often do those two things intersect at the same time? And the results were pretty interesting from it, actually. Um, let me see if I can find this for you. One of the interesting things was they said basically that the average family should have something like 5.6 weeks of their income in reserves in order to be able to withstand both of those things at one time. 5.6 weeks of income, does that mean 5.6 weeks of the actual dollars that come into your account? after taxes and everything else that gets taken out of your paycheck? Or is it 5.6 weeks of your total paycheck? It's 5.6 weeks of your net earnings. There's an expenditure spike that on average occurs every four months. So the stress test is two sides. So you have your expenditure spike and then you have your income dip. 
And then what they have is then they say when when they intersect at the same time, which is much more rare. But in the expenditure spike, they say every four months was kind of the median. And they said that 46% of families have insufficient savings to withstand an expenditure spike. And for an expenditure spike, they say you need 2.6 weeks. For an income dip, it happens once every nine months. For that, 48% have insufficient cash buffer to weather that. And they say that the cash buffer that a typical family needs is 2.8 weeks. The big one is the two together though. It only happens once every five and a half years. And 65% of people don't have enough for it. And the magnitude of cash buffer you need for that is 6.2 weeks. So the thing is, is that these numbers are just normal numbers. Like this is not considering a, you know, global crazy event like what we have. This was like for normal times. And basically 65% of families were, you know, not in a position to even be able to absorb it when things were just fine. Is there a similar type of test for businesses. I mean, you mentioned stress tests for banks. You now mentioned stress tests for families. Is there anything similar for just your general run-of-the-mill small businesses that we're talking about here? Uh, they should have six months. They should have six months, but they really only have 27 days. 27 days. So here's the thing on the corporate side. Big companies actually are worse off than most with this. Retailers are obviously very hard affected by this, but Kohl's, for instance, has 15 days. Macy's has 18. Nordstrom has 27. Best Buy has 30. Is that number of days on a, based on your normal expenditures or is that based on if we had to like cut certain luxuries? That's if operating without new sales or cutting costs. That's why the unemployment rates have gone up so much is because they have to cut deep those costs or else all of those businesses are gone. Coming into this, this idea of excess capacity, that term has a negative connotation generally. I mean, it means that, and it's generally applied to more like products, like having more than you can sell. That's not what you're talking about when you say excess capacity, or is it? It is, actually. And I think the reason why nobody has enough, and I mean nobody from the top, I mean, there are outliers, individuals, but I'm saying on average, every category that you look at is not weathered for this kind of a storm at all. But this kind of a storm is an extraordinary storm. The thing is, they weren't even set to weather a normal storm. You know, I think the reason for it is, is this idea that unutilized capacity was essentially like, it's like having dead assets. It's having assets that are unutilized, that are sitting there idle and not able to generate income for you or not generating profits. And so in business, this certainly exists in private equity. This is what they do, you know, that they will buy multiple companies, they will, you know, merge them and they will get rid of any redundancies, you know, in staff that they have. And it's a simple strategy and it works in terms of squeezing money out of it by eliminating essentially the excess capacity. It also gives them more pricing power as they kind of cut out competitors, they can raise prices. But it's very short-sighted. It's incredibly short-sighted. The most shocking picture I've seen in the last month is of these mass graves on this island outside of New York City. I didn't even know what to think of it, actually, and no one talked about it. It just seems so out of anything we'd ever seen before. I think people didn't know how to react to it, didn't even know how to judge it as a good thing or a bad thing. It's like, it seems like this is maybe what they have to do. Anyway, it turns out that they bury unclaimed bodies there, the city of New York does, and has for a long time, usually prisoners from Rikers Island. It's been done before, but seeing this like this, where there's you know at least 40 caskets in one mass grave was shocking to me. And you know, I started thinking, well, how is that even possible? Like, How is it that, this is like in the very beginning, it seemed like, you know, I mean, New York hadn't hit its peak or anything, and we're already burying you know, people in mass graves. It just seemed to me it jumped out as this example of where there, again, is no excess capacity in the system. Excess capacity for what in that context? Places to put bodies? Yeah, funeral homes. 
So a friend of mine was pitching me years ago on this company that was basically was doing a, a roll-up strategy with funeral homes. You know, they'd go and they'd buy them and you know, they're family owned. Who wanted to buy a family home? No one did, but these companies would. And they were, you know, kind of profitable businesses. The idea is that you could see the demographic trends. You can kind of forecast what the death rates would be. So they'd buy several of them and they would shut down the least profitable ones and, you know, and then they would raise prices. This is what private equity does. And there are, I think, three public companies actually that have done this, that own a substantial portion of the funeral homes in the world. And since 1990, roughly two thirds of the funeral homes in New York City have been closed. So I don't know what their actual capacity is in each one. You know, there might be some that are bigger that handle more, but there were small family funeral homes, you know, ones that would be part of the neighborhood, like you would know them where they were presiding over a funeral of somebody they could actually even, you know, the funeral director could even offer some words personally knowing the person. And so that's all gone. No one expects that anymore with anything. But I mean, there's no capacity. I mean, first they get these trailers to store the bodies in and then they fill up and then they're just burying them in the, on this island. And it's like, greatest country in the world, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. We're burying people within 10 days on some you know, unmarked plots. It's crazy. It just reeks to me of this idea of not having enough capacity. I think it's actually more than that too. It's also the type of capacity maybe, right? Like certain types of capacity, to use the parlance of our conversation, is more valuable than others in certain respects. You know what I mean? Like how much capacity should I really have in the off chance that I'm going to have that every five year, you know, one, two punch that you mentioned earlier in terms of cost and revenue at the same time? You know, how much capacity is a responsible amount to have if holding that capacity has a cost on the near term? So you have a long-term capacity versus the near-term need. The, not the near-term need, the near-term cost, the cost of having idle assets, right? Like what's the cost of idle assets? This is the problem that people don't understand about risk. Nassim Taleb calls it fat tail risk. And basically it's like, while the normal risks, the normal distribution of risks means that it is, it would obviously be a waste to have this unutilized capacity. But in the event of a fat tail risk, which they come about, they happen pretty regularly, but people don't plan for them. I mean, in my lifetime, since I've been an adult and in investing and an entrepreneur, I've had the dot-com blow up, which was like a once in a lifetime event. And then we had the great financial crisis, once in a lifetime event. Now we have this once in a lifetime event. I don't know. It seems like they're not once in a lifetime events. It seems like it seems like we're underestimating risks. So fat tail risk is really important. And I think people don't understand the value of essentially having insurance. insurance. Excess capacity is insurance, essentially. And it allows you also to capitalize on opportunities that present themselves. So it's not just about it sitting idle and it costing you to sit there. It's that you having dry powder allows you to be in a position to take advantage of opportunities when they do arise and to weather storms when they come up as well. And I, I think that's the key to long-term success is in your business and individually. Okay, so that you, you mentioned that twice now, this idea of opportunities as well. So there's another decision that probably needs to be discussed a little bit, right? So you've got this dry powder. And right now, when we say this, we're speaking primarily in terms of capital financial dry powder at the moment, okay? And then maybe staff or something like that too, right? You know, so we've got the financial and the human capital available. Some of that in the context of what we're talking about right now is to weather a hundred year flood, as you mentioned, to get through these hard times with the cash that you have on hand. 
But on the other hand, you also mentioned the opportunity, right? So this idea that we've got cash on hand so that when a business opportunity comes along, we have the financial capabilities to capitalize on that and what that might be. So A, I, I think I'll ask you for an example of what you mean by that, if you could point to something, just because I think it always helps. But then the second question is going to be, when do you tap into that capacity for the opportunity for fear of then not having it in case immediately after the, you're spending on the opportunity, another hundred in your foot comes along or something like that? You see what I'm saying? Like there's a decision that has to be made there at some point. In your personal life, I consider having that this level of savings, like oh, I tell people personally, having 90 days of all of the expenses in your life saved is your FU money, you know? Like it gives you freedom to choose whether or not, like if you're in a, a job that's a bad situation and you really want to get out of it, like if you only have two weeks of savings, like it's a lot harder, a lot harder for you to go into a good situation than if you have 90 days, you have just more freedom of choice. So that freedom of choice means you can get out of a bad situation, but also you can be slower do you have time to actually be thoughtful about what you do next? So in your personal life, it that buffer allows you to think more clearly. And I think that one of the big things about having any kind of buffer in your life, whether it is some kind of form of capital or whether it's time, I think that that is the key to making good decisions. And that's where you find the opportunities. So there's going to be, just like there was in the financial crisis, there were incredible opportunities to buy assets. In 2011, there's great opportunity to buy lots of assets from real estate to stocks and bonds. There's huge opportunities to buy great assets if you had dry powder. But if you were fully already invested in the market, then you know you got crushed on the way down and you didn't have anything then to deploy when the market was in a bad place to be able to actually exploit that unique opportunity that existed. So most individual investors completely missed out on the upside. They sold when it got near the bottom and they missed out on most of the big gains up until the last couple of years. So I think the last three years when most individual investors started to actually get back into the market again. So just in time to get wiped out again. Seems like that's the way it always works. If you have competitors, those competitors are, are probably not smart enough to have saved to have dry powder. And when they get in a distressed position, you can partnership or acquire them or something else. So having it there is important. I also think just in the normal day-to-day -day of operating your business, not in any crisis at all, but if your team is so overwhelmed by the tasks of the day that they don't have the time or energy or mental free space to sort of poke around in the business and look for where the opportunities might be, then I think you are making a gigantic mistake. Because if there's no excess capacity, they'll only be able to do the things that are already done. You know what I mean? To keep the business at its current status, if everyone is, if you've optimized it to the point where, you know, you're cut your employee cost to the point where you're operating with just what you need, then there is no opportunity to grow from there. Like growth gets slowed by your limited access to capital, human capital in that case. And so when you say human capital, what you're saying is the, the excess capacity is the capacity in your employees' heads, basically, in, in their minds, and that they've got, you know, maybe 80% of their focus is on the tasks that they're hired to do, but you want to keep that other 20%, and I'm just throwing out numbers, to ideate on what might, what the next thing. And you know, and you know, you'll have 10 ideas and nine of them won't work, but the one that does will be the thing that advances the business or, or has some outsized effect. Well, even being able to have a little, be able to step back and be able to see a problem that's happening in the work that you're doing, you know? Like, but if you don't have any, if you're just heads down trying to get things done, you don't have the opportunity to recognize, or the chance to recognize, you know, that there are errors being made which could be very costly to you over time. I mean, Google had this policy for a long time. I don't know if they still do. We're basically on Fridays, you know? They could work on whatever project they wanted to, or one day a week, 20% of their time, something like that. They could spend working on a project that interested them. And that did turn into some really big innovations. But if you had any private equity firm come in, there, they go, well, this is the first thing we're going to cut. Because 
the optionality of it. You can't build it into your model. Having excess capacity among your team to build something like Gmail, you know, no one would have thought of it. No one would have said that that would be what it is, that it would be, is, you know, such a huge driver for them that in ubiquitous, everyone uses Gmail. But that 20% extra time is what made that possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and it's like the spectrum here, I guess, really comes back. To, and I, we, we kind of touched on this, but I want to more clearly uh, state it, is that if you look at the spectrum along a, you know, a line, on one end of that spectrum is you know the excess capacity part. And then the far other end of that is, I guess, efficiency. And we've been over-indexing maybe on the efficiency side. We've been so focused on trying to remain efficient. And efficiency has been the was what's been rewarded. Right. I think another word for it could be short-termism. You're basically trying to squeeze out the profits out of something that's happening today, out of what exists today, versus making investments in the future. The only way the U.S. will get out of our awful situation with this huge credit bubble and it's just we just kicked the can down the road you know, since basically 2000, the only way we ever get out of it is if we start to have an excess of savings in the United States. We have to have an excess of net savings in the United States. It's the only way. Like It's the only way any country's ever gotten out of stuff like this. Only way. You have to have excess capacity. I always get back to this balance idea because it's like, I'll go to my personal uh, experience for a second, like as the family trying to have my excess capacity and savings. You know, my buffer is like a year. Like if I lose my job, it's going to take me a year to find another job. I truly believe that that's how long it would take. Now, it probably won't. But in my head, it's like, you know, I'm older. I'm in a business that has demand, but it's usually a younger thing. I can go on and on and on. So I, I like, I almost over-index on having more saved up that I'm probably losing out on opportunities that I might, maybe I should be taking that savings to apply to, but I feel better knowing that it's there. I leave it there. And then I don't want to dig into it. Like the more I build it, the more I want to keep it and the less I want to touch it. So let me switch gears for a second. Forget about the financial part of it. Let's talk about maybe the experience of the day, which is the having food on hand, right? Like, you know, having a few days. So, so I look at the food I have in the house and okay, this is the food that could stay for six months versus this is the food that's got to be used before it goes bad. While I have this big buffer of food, you know, in my pantry, I'm still buying at a normal amount. I'm not overbuying, but I'm still buying my regular whatever every two weeks or something like that. And I don't want to touch the, and, I, and now I'm even less wanting to touch the other stuff. So it's like at the expense of like, maybe I can make this really great meal using these three cans of uh, garbanzo beans, but I want to touch those beans. I want to use the others. It sounds stupid, but like the point I'm trying to get at is for some of us, for people like me, once we have built this excess capacity, there's almost a fear to use it because you never really know whether you're using it for the right way. Like the, the only time I would actually touch that is in the absolute total emergency. We've lost our jobs and we're screwed. Otherwise, I'm not going to touch it and maybe it's wasted. But see, I think the thing is, is that if you don't know when to use it, if you feel like it's not the right time to use it and you end up just letting it sit there, it's because it's obvious that it's not the time to use it. If you have this excess capacity, you have it there. I mean, there are two ways to look at excess capacity. One way I think about it is that by creating enough free space, then you increase the choice that you have because you're, you're not forced into making decisions that you would prefer not to make. Like it just so there's a little buffer that's like just giving you freedom to make choices. Like by having some food in your house, you can choose not to go to the grocery store. You know, when people are fighting over toilet paper, you could just choose to opt out. You're not actually using your resources then, really, not really. You can have more clarity in decisions to make. And I think having that free space in your head, especially if you are a leader and responsible for an organization, whether that be a head of household for a family or whether it be a CEO of a company, I think like ha that free space mentally is critical to keep you from making terrible, 
irrevocable decisions. That is a great point, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way. And I do feel I have that now. Like I, I just, you know, had my anxiety spike like everybody else for a while. Do I have enough? You know, blah, blah, blah. Made some moves, made some plans, things like that. And I feel a lot better now. You know, you're always on edge. At least I am. But it's it's less so. And you're right. That's a very good point. You're buying space and freedom, a peace of mind a little bit. Right. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur and you only have three weeks of cash in the bank to be able to meet payroll, I'm telling you, every day you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able, there's something will come up and you're not going to be, your employees won't get paid. If you want to get gray fast, if you want to die quickly, then worry about meeting payroll. It is an unbelievable burden for an entrepreneur to have. It's unbelievable. And so to like to not work really hard, however you have to, if it means sacrificing in the short term in order to be able to, you know, sacrifice on the excess capacity of human capital, you know, so that you can accumulate financial capital. So then you can have space to not have to worry about being able to meet payroll on this very, very short-term basis, then that's what you should do. But that free space is, number one, super critical. Number two, when it's time to use your excess capacity, it's pretty clear. I mean, in general, I think big moves in life, like you just do nothing until the answer is obvious. It'll be obvious so long as you've given yourself enough mental space that you can be objective about it. Like when the stock market hit at a low, I think it was in 2011, Most people had been so brutalized by the market at that point that they completely missed out on the sale of a lifetime. Same thing with real estate. I mean, when I moved to Denver, it was nine years ago. So real estate was in the gutter and I was still like, I've never been a real estate guy. So I still was like, they're building a lot of stuff around here. I don't think I'd want to buy anything. And I waited for like four years before I bought anything. And of course I paid probably double what I would have had to pay if I would have bought then. But like, because I was not in the mental space for it. So it happens to everybody. But I just think also real estate has its own lots of other problems. But um, the important decisions in life, the answer actually seems obvious to us when we have to make it. And when it's not obvious, the answer is, well, we'll see. Not now. There's a great quote that I love from a friend of yours that you've also quoted, Derek Sivers. And the quote is, hell yes or no. I love that. Exactly. Derek is a remarkable person. You know what he did the other day? He sent out an email to his entire email list. He said, just checking in on how are you doing? And it was sincere, okay? And he sent to like 30,000 people. Anyone who replied, he replied to them. And he took him like four days nonstop, but he replied to everybody. I mean, Derek is, a, Derek is a unique human. He really is a remarkable person. That quote in particular is something that I try to remember all the time. And afterwards, when I make decisions that I wasn't sure about, and afterwards they were of course proven to be not the right decision, I was like, you know what? Because if I had done the hell yes or no, I would not have been in the situation. And it's from little things to big things. It's really amazing. So let me just close maybe the last bit of area of topic here, building this excess capacity if you don't already have it. I mean, now, of course, might be tough just because of the situation, but let's maybe speak more broadly than outside the immediate situation. Or if you had some thoughts on the immediate situation, that's fine too. But my point is, just like with a family who's trying to you know build up their savings or a company that's kind of living week to week just based on their model or whatever it is, Creating that excess capacity sounds smart, but for many, depending on the situation, it's very, very difficult to do. It is difficult because you have to actually sacrifice. You have to go without something today in order to have something in the future. Technically, how you do it is you basically, you have to keep your expenses lower than your operating costs. That's it. And then you keep that cash. You just, you spend less than you make. If you're not doing that now, there's two ways of doing it. You either cut expenses or you raise prices. As a company, if you are actually providing something truly valuable to your customers, you probably could be charging more than you are today. And I think a lot of people who do get hamstrung, if they, especially if they come from the industry or come from you know, the, the product creation side of things, you know, like I was talking again to a local rancher, 
talking about how he prices his meat and he's very price sensitive. You know, he's like whole foods charges this. So I got to be like, right where whole foods is, you know, and it's like, well, you're selling a commodity. That's true. If you're going to compete with this as a commodity, then it's going to be really hard for you ever to build anything with any sustainability. You have to twist your service, tailor it a bit. So the value proposition is something that the customer is willing to pay more for, where you can build in enough margin that you can survive. Usually people like him, they aren't, they're very cost conscious. You know, they're running it as lean as possible, but unless they tailor the service better, unless they increase their value proposition in some way, you know, they can't build in enough margin really to build that excess capacity they need. So increasing prices in some cases can make a lot of sense. And sometimes that means disappointing current customers. Sometimes that means firing a certain subset of current customers. I mean, sometimes customers cost you way more money than you can possibly make from them. And then basically it keeps you from serving other customers because you, you, know, you only have so much capital. So a lot of times people are worried, well, if I give up this dollar in revenue, it's really going to hurt me. But no, that's not often true. And we've seen it in our business where we said, you know, we're only going to work with a certain subset of clients, like people from a certain set of distributors, for instance, that we know that we can work with, you know, that we can rely on them and we can transfer title easily enough. And by eliminating other distributors, we eliminated those and some expected the business would suffer from it, but the business grew after it. And every time we've limited things, the business has grown. I'll jump in on it as someone who was a consultant for a while. It's always the clients that paid the least that took the most work around the biggest pain in the ass. And, and I hate to say it like that, but it's like once they were gone, the clients that were paying more were actually easier to deal with for some reason. And it's I never really understood why, but I don't want to divert, but I understand. So basically be more efficient with what you're spending your time on and how that time is delivering you income or revenue or however you want. You have to have a model that has is creating some value that you can charge something above commodity prices on, or else you're just going to get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. It's a race to the bottom. No sustainable business can be built where you're being squeezed like that. The other side is just doing without. And doing without is one thing is there's a temptation, especially when times are good, to take on debt. I have always felt very uncomfortable with debt, but that people talk about smart debt. And I've always looked at all debt is bad because essentially it your structural expenses become higher and good debt becomes bad debt very quickly in an economic turndown or downturn. All right. So, and you said you want to get back to the personal, that was the business side, but I, I imagine these same factors apply in a slightly different way on a personal family savings and income basis. Yeah. I mean, on a personal side, especially if you are single and you early in your career and you aren't saving 30% of your income, you should make some substantial changes. Because the truth is, is that, you know, we come out of college or if you don't go to college, whatever, you come out of a situation where your your living standards are not that high at this point. You're fine with food of that's really cheap. You're fine, you know, having four roommates. You're fine with this living situation. Now, the tendency, as soon as you get a job, as soon as you have some income, you're like, okay, well, now I need my own place and now I need a car and now I should, you know, I got to do these responsible things. Basically, your expenses go in line and sometimes they exceed your income. It's like, as a business, it's like you're getting richer and richer customers who are generating more and more revenue for you, but you're spending all of that money on nicer offices the whole time. You know, it's very hard for you to ever get ahead if that's the case. So you really should be trying to save, you know, 30 or percent or more of your income during that time period. Because, and if you've ever seen these, the compounding growth curve, you know, of, of, of savings and investment. The key is early start. You can, uh, very little invested early has a huge impact 30 years from now. Now, if you wait 10 years and you invest twice as much starting at the 10th year in, you will have less money at that 30 year mark than you would if you would have just started with a lot less 
in the very beginning. So savings early on is really important. And I think actually a lot of millennials are pretty good about this, believe it or not. A lot of millennials, they, they don't want to buy houses and they get criticized because they're not participating in the economy or whatever, you know, but they're cheap about some things and they, they having savings is not uncommon actually among millennials and even Gen Z now. And I think it's because they see kind of people being forced into these debt burdens that everyone has. And they're just like opting out of it. They're just saying, I don't know. I'm not sure I want that. Because they've seen these several once in a lifetime events in different ways and at different parts of their lives, right? Through their parents, executives. I mean, some of that stuff as a kid will imprint on you. I'm very curious to see how the situation is imprinting on my daughter. And I'm sure you're, you're probably thinking the same with your kids. So that'd be very interesting to see. I mean, the long-term effects of this, is it'll be very, very interesting to see. So, all right, excess capacity. And I love that that applies to more than just capital, but also to mind share. I think that's, I feel like we didn't spend as much time on that, but I think that that's almost more important to a certain degree. Yeah, and let me just, I'll say one other thing about, just to clarify, you get forced to make decisions when none of the decisions are good. If you don't have enough excess capacity, whether that's cash on hand, whether it's the mental clarity required to be able to objectively move forward or not with any major decision, I think that that mental clarity is the most valuable thing you can have, especially if you're in any kind of a leadership role. People need you to be clear thinking, you know, to have open eyes and clear thinking is critical. I think we should link to some things, you know, in the show notes for this and including this JP Morgan Institute report that estimates the household stress test requirements. Also, I recommend it's really important in my mind that people read some Nassim Taleb. He is a genius. He, a lot of people don't like him because he's can be very rude to people who deserve it, frankly. But he has a, this a series of books. You know, Black Swan is one of them. You know, his most recent one is Skin in the Game. My personal favorite is one called Anti-Fragile. The core theme of everything that we were talking about today is being in a position where you are have the ability to be anti-fragile. Now, anti-fragile, just real quick on this, is different. People think that like the opposite of fragile would be resilient or robust. Having a certain amount of savings can make you robust. You know, uh, having some excess capacity can make you robust, like giving you the ability to survive a bad situation. The goal really is to be anti-fragile, meaning that when bad things happen, when things that are unexpected occur, when fat tail risk happens, you get stronger. Not that you don't lose, but that actually the opposite of being fragile, you become more robust in that environment. And that happens when you have the mental clarity and excess capacity together, you can make good decisions. And then you can think also, you can think much further ahead. You can have a far-sighted view. And that's the key to making good decisions, of course, is being able to look further ahead. So I'm a big fan. A friend of mine who was very much against him, didn't like him at all. He said, I tried to read it. It just, he's such an asshole, he said. And I said, give it another try because he's a genius. You need to read his stuff if you really want to understand how to put yourself in a position to succeed long-term. We should set a goal to try to get him on the show here, maybe. That would be... Uh, oh my God, I'd love to talk to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, I love it. I'll tell you what, if anything might make a lot of us anti-fragile out of a bad situation, it's what we're currently in. So hopefully everyone listening will uh, is learning and surviving. And until next time, thanks very much, Matt. All right, thank you, Anthony. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. 
A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.